This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Today I have a great guest for you, Hunter Thompson from Cashflow Connections. How's it going, Hunter? Great. Thanks again for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys want to check out his uh, website and podcast, it's Cashflow Connections. Uh, don't get it mixed up with Simple Passive Cashflow. But very, uh, very similar on the, our paths here and um, thought we'd kind of get to know you a little bit better, kind of get an insight of uh, another passive investor who's doing pretty well too. Uh, so the question we always at, like to ask our guests just to get a sense of where you're at, Hunter, is how much Simple Passive Cashflow are you making today and how are you doing it? Yeah, so, you know, I currently pay off my expenses via passive cash flow. And that's something that took several years to do a variety of investing in my own personal portfolio and then also syndicating investments and taking a percentage of the proceeds of those. So that took place around 2012, being able to support myself in Los Angeles and continue to do that. And, and we can talk about later in terms of, I really had my mind completely blown by someone. I was in a seminar and early on, someone mentioned that their goal that they're currently working on is 10Xing their passive income to their expenses. And I was like, whoa, that is like something I never heard before because so many people are working towards that. So, you know, that, when you hear something like that- was it? <laughs> it was actually, gosh, what was his? Mike Cantu, actually, oh, okay. who is a well-known investor in California. And the way that he did it required a lot of work. Basically, I just wanted to share that with your investors because once you do reach that other goal, you're like, what's the main one there? And it's like the 3X, the 5X, the 10X. So yeah, I've been able to do that. But once you get there, you're like, man, I just want more. I want more of the same. So that's kind of where I'm at in that process. Yeah. So maybe um, take us back to, I mean, if you were working a day job earlier, what was kind of that, that Han Solo moment that kind of brought you to where you're at today? So, you know, this is something that that's kind of interesting. So my grandfather was a very successful businessman in the seventies and the eighties. Um, he had a cotton company that was the second largest international cotton company in 1990, excuse me, 1976. And then again in 1977 uh, by 1998, they went through one of the most catastrophic bankruptcies in the history of cotton or, or business as a whole, basically going from more than $100 million of revenue to zero, to personal bankruptcy and business bankruptcy. The way this happened was a combination of a lot of leverage. He basically saw a shortage in cotton that was taking place, put a lot of leverage on that shortage resulting in prices of cotton skyrocketing. The shortage happened, as he predicted, and the price increase did not happen. And because of how leveraged he was, the bank foreclosed on the business. He had also signed some personally guaranteed loans, which ended up personally bankrupting him. And through years of litigation, was able to keep a fraction of a percent of his net worth. And so my story actually starts back then, that fraction of a percent, you know, tiny, tiny piece of capital back then grown over two decades or three decades resulted in a small or reasonably medium-sized investment portfolio that I started my investment career with. And the reason I did that is just this incredible responsibility that I had seeing what he went through, knowing that if he had just used more pragmatic, more prudent investor approach, just to save a smaller, just a little bit more, that the entire financial future of you know, many generations to come would be completely changed. And just to clarify that, I'm certainly not complaining, right? That lesson 
is so valuable. I've formed my entire life. My entire career is about the lessons learned from what he had to go through. You know, that's where my, my passive career really started knowing what someone like my grandfather went through, realizing that you didn't have to risk it all to really experience lucrative returns and then founding the business based on those principles. Um, so, you know, I can go into more details, but that's, that's an interesting piece about my background where, you know, a lot of people really focus on that, that transitional period. I was in a unique position to really start investing uh, prior to being able to, you know, from a W-2 perspective. So that that's kind of like the, my accidental landlord story in a way. So, you know, I kind of got started haphazardly and, you know, you got, you got this uh, little portfolio. What, what exactly was it? Stocks stocks and bonds and mutual funds. And I really, so when I first looked, started looking at finances, I was very compelled by these assets. I knew that they were liquid. I knew that there was a lot of marketing around them in terms of how much money you can make in stocks and how historically things do quite well. And so when 2008 happened, I've always been the kind of person that really likes to go left when everyone's looking right. And I'm very counter cyclical. It's very much in my nature. It's not always positive, but it's just how it is. So when 2008 happened, I was really excited about the opportunity from investing in stock perspective. And so I kind of went in with both feet. This was basically how I spent my day, you know, during college doing this. I was all in until around 2010. And this is when the European debt crisis really started to take hold. Um, my last strong moment with this was watching CNBC and they were talking about the Greece bond yields. And they were talking about how the Greece bond yields went above 7%, that the S&P 500 was going to collapse. But if they stayed below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. And I just remember watching this thinking, how is it the case that the Greece bond yields are having any role in my financial well-being, let alone a significant role to where they're talking about it on a daily basis? That really led me down the path of trying to identify vehicles that could produce favorable risk-adjusted returns that, that were simple enough so I could actually conduct due diligence without having a massive infrastructure. Eventually, that led me to real estate, and eventually, that led me, you know, to this conversation we're having right now. Yeah. So, so you um you kind of went from that stock portfolio to kind of you know getting started being a direct operator. Did at any point did you have to burn the boats to you know get rid of those stocks? Can you talk about oh yeah, how that happened. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, just to clarify, when you when you say burn the boat, so I mean, I was basically exiting out of stocks right. as I saw new opportunities c come up. I, I didn't have a, a last straw moment where I clicked sell, 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 sell. It was really rotating out. And because of the timing of the market, it was very favorable to be doing that in the sense that I was able to experience a significant portion of that upside before real estate really corrected around 2011 and 12, because real estate typically moves much more slowly than stocks. Right. Best of both worlds, obviously there. Um, but I'm just not a fan of the vehicle because I'm a huge fan of focus and productivity and identifying your goals. When it looks, when it comes to financial goals, most people want cash flow to pay off their expenses and they want predictable outcomes. The stocks do not give you either of those. It's just a matter of identifying the vehicles which will most directly facilitate that and investing in them. Because of that, I've invested in a variety of different asset classes, but all of them in real estate. Other than the 27 weeks of curated content for the passive investor, the new mastermind will offer bi-weekly power calls with the following format. First week of every month, we will dial in on being a direct investor or 
Simple passive cash flow 1.0 I call it, which is getting your first rental, negotiating, sourcing, operation, etc. Second week of every month, we will discuss holistic wealth building topics for what I call Simple Passive Cash Flow 2.0 Plus, which is holistic wealth management, syndications, private placements, tax, legal, lifestyle design, etc. Get a sense of this format by checking out the Guide to Taxes video at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash tax. I'll be honest, some things I can't say to the general public because it's too personal and it's not to say bad things about others. Unless you're in the mastermind. One rule we have is what happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. To get in, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey. Don't be left out and join the day. If you've been waiting on the sidelines, this is your moment and not to be taken by an institutionalized education program. You know, if I were to kind of do a pseudo poll in my head of investors I talk to, I'd say about 95% of them still have stocks probably about 80% of those have a great amount in stocks still. How did you transition out of the stocks? Do you still own any? Like what did you get one investment and what, what was it? And did you, how did you trend, you know, get proof of concept and then transition out? How so, did you start? What was, and then yeah. what was the tipping point for you? That's, that's an interesting question because a lot of us are obviously drawn to single family because it's an easy entry point especially if you, you're new to the space, you know that if you have $30,000, you can buy a property. Basically. So much education out there, so many podcasts and everything. Exactly. There's just a lot of marketing to, to that effect, especially at the time. But for me, my goal was basically to find predictable outcomes on a favorable risk-adjusted basis. I found that via debt, very compelling. So the first investment that I made in the real estate sector was to lend flippers capital kind of as a hard money loan, but also to buy self-created debt in the sense that we would, we would either lend money on properties at the time you could get incredibly favorable rates, you know, 14% annualized return with a 60% loan to value, or let's say 70% on purchase price. Back then, 2009, 2010, that was kind of very achievable. Now, since then the rates have changed significantly and makes that not as compelling anymore, but as markets started to correct, I started to look at single family and the real challenge that I had with the asset class at the time was that the, the lack of scalability is one thing, but also the simplicity of the investment vehicle makes it such that there's not a very big difference between an absolute best in class owner, operator, or manager and a mom and pop owner. Now that could be to the advantage of someone who just wants to buy one or two properties. But if you're trying to build a business around that, it's challenging to really get the benefits of all that goes along with the complexities of commercial real estate, for example. And I don't want to say like counteract what I was saying earlier about the simplicity of the investment. Overall, the real estate sector is on a is categorically different than the complexities of the stock market and the European bonds and stuff like that. So just wanted to make that point. Um, but that was kind of when I started to really shift my portfolio as well as my career to focus on, on commercial was just understanding that the more moving parts there are, the more of a unique difference an operator can have. And so that's how my passive portfolio is set up now to this day. I heard it on a podcast recently. It was more of a marketing podcast, but they said in the tech world, 70 something percent of all the market shares to like the, the best competitor out there. It's not, in the past, you'd have a little bit more um, 
you know, market share would be kind of spread out all over the place. But nowadays it's because everybody's so educated, the internet, you know, Yelp, mm. everybody knows that that's the best restaurant. So that's mm -hmm. how the trend is. So that makes total sense that just figure out who are the, the best in class out there. A buddy of mine does junior mining, just figures out which one are the best ones to invest in, which is the mm. best management and just goes with it. So a great, great way of thinking of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just one of those things where I want to be close enough to the asset to understand it thoroughly, but I really want to defer to others' expertise. And I think that's one of the reasons I was excited to come on your show. There's so few people that focus on passive income in, this, in the syndication space. And so I was very drawn to that. The idea that I could leverage an expert's expertise, as well as their time, energy, access to capital and liability. You're basically getting the best of all the options and the return profile, in my opinion, is very comparable, but the time is not a factor. So you can really build your life around that. Um, I ended up building a career about on passive investments, and that's what we do as a company. But you know, you don't have to do that. You can keep your job. You can do whatever brings joy to your life. You can continue to do. You know, if you built up that portfolio and, and want to receive that passive income. Yeah. So most people I talk to, they have some kind of a pain point story working in the day job. What was what was your funny one there? Man, I'll be honest with you. So I very early on was really drawn to entrepreneurship. And so when I graduated college, I knew there was going to be an opportunity in real estate. I jumped in with both feet, did, a, did some deals and had and some what, success. What year did you graduate? So 2010, right. Right when that was really taking yeah. place. And the opportunity to me was written on the wall, just focusing on economics so I did deals for my own portfolio and then started bringing in friends and family and had raised, you know, a total of a half a million dollars and really proved the concept that I knew how to identify lucrative opportunities. I knew how to transactionally handle raising capital, doing this all legally and issuing distributions. And so I you know, attempted to scale and the way I wanted to do this was to create a blog. It was called the cashflowisking.com. Obviously there's some similarities in the name. <laughs> And yeah, don't go there now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And basically, I created this blog. I started writing. The response was not what I was anticipating. I had had some success as an entrepreneur through high school, through college, event production, various other things. I also worked for Cutco at a time and had had success there, set records in that area. So I anticipate this would be easy for me, right? So I was basically like, okay, I know what I'm doing. Historically, I've been able to, to make good money doing this, that, and the other thing. And it wasn't nearly as easy as I thought. And so there was a moment where I thought, you know, if I can get a job making a reasonable income, this would be a good option for me. And I had had success in real estate enough to put on a resume. And I started shopping this. I also really wanted to increase my sales uh, skills. So I ended up working for a company that put realtors on Google ads. I was there for a total of six weeks. Uh, this was the first time that I had really worked in this kind of setting. I am not cut out for that. I did not feel comfortable. The, the really the last straw moment was I had an injury on my shoulder, had to go to the doctor and get it checked out, get an MRI. And I went in on Thursday to say, you know, tomorrow I have to go to this MRI. I just wanted to let you know. And the response to that was like, if you were like four years old and you told your parents that you like wanted to go out in the middle of the night, you know, and they're like, wait, what? Like, did you talk to HR? Like, what are you talking? Like, I, I didn't know, right. This is like not my background that the, their response to me saying that was when I was like, 
there's one option for me. I have to make this, this private equity company work. And that's when basically things changed completely for me. I mean, we went from having very friends and family investors to scaling. Now we, you know, we have a $10 million fund. We have 250 investors that are actively investing, but the, the difference between then and now is years and years of hard work and a lot of challenging times. It's been able to, been able to accomplish it, but that was a really scary moment for me. Um, going from thinking that things would just go my way to being, you know, really kicked in the mouth. Yeah. Cause you didn't want to be treated like a little child and you weren't going back to that. So you had to make it happen. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of, um, a lot of the listeners are kind of high performing folks. They're always trying a different couple of different things. What are a couple of, uh, you know, two week experiment or maybe a longer term project you're working on these days to give people ideas? Yeah, sure. So I mean, we can do real estate, we can do non-real estate, but I'll start with some of the more interesting things. So um, I'm a huge fan of working out. This is something that I take very seriously. I'm definitely kind of in the intermediate lifter category if you actually talk to lifters, but I'm 160 pounds. I have a 415 pound deadlift. Most people, that's kind oh, of that's like up in good. the, yeah, yeah it's, in, it's like something that I'm happy with. I recently been doing CrossFit workouts for the first time ever. I ran cross country and track in high school, but since then I have not wanted to do anything related to time because of the experience like in cross country and track. Just now, obviously CrossFit, there's a time component there and I'm really enjoying that. I have been meditating and taking morning routines very seriously. This is something, again, that maybe two years ago, when you're not optimally maximizing your entire day, once you start to push what's capable in a 40-hour work week or 60-hour or work week or 70, whatever you choose to do, then you start looking other ways to really optimize. And for me, the morning routine is a huge portion of that. And I can go into some of the details, but if you haven't read Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs, specifically the one for entrepreneurs, I highly suggest it. It's basically a boot camp about morning routines. Cameron Harold is one of those authors. And so that's something I've been experiencing with. You can try Headspace out. If it's not for you, it's all good. But it's basically, look, there's no better way to spend 10 minutes. It's free. You just sit and think. And I have had, the results from that have been tremendous. So those are a couple examples of non-real estate related things, but um, those are some of the things I'm testing out now. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys want to check out that book, it's by Hal Elroyd. I also wrote a little ebook that uh, is real estate. What is it? The Miracle Morning for Real Estate Investors. My little version of it. If you guys oh, really? Want to, cool. So if you guys, I like that. Email, you guys can, I'll send you to that. Or maybe I'll, I'll probably just put in the show notes here for you guys. I guess the, the problem I have sometimes is you know, that gets you going, maybe you have your coffee and then you're good for the next few hours. But then how do you deal with that two o'clock, three o'clock lull in the afternoon? Mm. Do you yeah, so, engage or get in the headspace app again? Or You know, I actually have done. So I- Oh, you're financially do... free, right? So you just take the day off at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I, my schedule is completely insane. But, um, you know, just to give you an idea, I have actually found I don't do intermittent fasting. I do have a protein shake in the morning, but I don't eat at all until 1130. That's when my lunch is. So I have found that doing intermittent fasting actually can power you through. So I don't have coffee in the morning at all. Being slightly hungry, hungry makes me focus. And so I've had a lot of really great success with that, to be honest. I do have coffee once I eat lunch. That's the only time I have it. But I will say, um, when you mentioned going back on Headspace, you will be shocked at what, if you haven't tried this, what you can get 
out of doing a two minute meditation around that time you were talking about. So if you're starting to feel groggy and you do a two minute breathing exercise, which can be led on Headspace, I have found that you can get at least three more hours just from doing two minutes. I mean, maybe that's just the placebo effect, but a placebo effect is one of the strongest things you can have in the world in terms of like psychology. So I'm down to keep that. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable strategy. And then just to be honest, I do do pre-workout before I work out. So that'll probably power me through oh. until like 8 p.m. What are you using today? <laughs> NO Explode? Is that what the kids are using? C4 <laughs> is kind of a common one now. And that's, yeah. that's the one I use. <laughs> so what is that simple passive cash flow number that you're kind of shooting for these days in your head? Yeah. D- just to clarify, when it talks about passive income, there's a lot of ways to do this. You can invest your own portfolio. You can raise money. What my business does is helps people invest in deals that I am investing in personally, right? And so when we do that, we take a percentage of basically capital raised. It's not exactly it's like a low out like that. Fund. Yeah. Exactly. It's not exactly paid like that, but let's use rough numbers just to get an understanding of what I'm talking about. So if you could net out, let's say a percentage of what you raise on an annual basis, right? So based on performance above a preferred return, which I think is achievable in today's standards. If you can raise $5 million and those investments perform over a 10 year period and you can add and you get receive 1% of that, that would be $50,000 in income on average once the properties are sold. So if you could raise $5 million a year for 10 years, you put yourself in a very good position in not a very long time because that's that $50,000 yield will come each year over the average. So my goal is to 5X my expenses um, with my income. Now, it's not exactly passive income. It's my entire job. It's my entire business. And we have plenty of expenses as a firm, but that'll kind of give you an idea of, of what I'm heading for. One of the ways to do that is increase your number of investors and deliver on the promises you have with your current investors. We have about 250 right now. I think that we're on our way to having 600 by 2020. And with 600 investors investing 50 or $75,000 a year, you can make some really significant moves in the real estate sector when you, especially when you leverage. So that's, that's my goal. And that's, that's my vivid vision of the company is being able to do that. The reason I focus on growing the investor base is it shows you that I am 100% focusing on investing in properties that can perform because if that doesn't happen, you realize that that's how valuable those 600 people are, that they can completely change your financial well-being. But if you lose them, it's like, that's it. I mean, they're worth, they're worth so much. So the whole business is focused on trying to make sure that experience as an investor is awesome and doing the two things you want to do, which is protect and grow investor capital. So um, that'll kind of give you an insight in terms of my, my personal strategy and, and my vision. Right. The bigger it gets, the better deals you get, the better, better returns you get for them. Exactly. What are you going to do after you do this for five, 10 years and you get to that point? Are you going to kind of delegate it out or just what's the vision? Yeah, I think, you know, if you've ever done this exercise, then that's really, really powerful. Basically write down everything you do during the day, all the activities, usually it's somewhere between 20 and 40 things that you do during the day and rank yourself in terms of how much of an expert you are at each of those duties. Either you can do one through 10 or you can do, you know, unique ability being the highest E being expert, being uneducated, et cetera. You can just put, put those in a ranking and figure that out. And then your goal is to make it so that more and more of your day is doing things that you're an expert in, or it's your unique ability, meaning only you can do that. And so 
I'm constantly working towards that. And in the event that I'm able to get up into that 90% range, uh, there would be the, my day would be inconsequential, whether how much money we had or how much investors we had, because I would be operating at something that I love doing, that I want to jump out of the bed every day and do. I mean, right now we're doing something that I absolutely love doing, which is communicating and helping educate other investors. So if, if the bank account had three more zeros in it, I would be doing something very similar to this. I just really like building relationships and sharing this because I feel morally obligated to help people get money out of the stock market. A lot of it has to do with what my, my grandfather had to do with. A lot of it has to do with what I saw at the European debt crisis. People should not have, be subject to those types of risks. So in, in this seller's market where you know people are using the term, well, maybe it's the eighth inning and 11 inning ball game, what would you suggest somebody who does not have a substantial level of net worth, maybe 200 grand to their name and you know maybe only able to save 10 or $20,000 a year, what would you say that they should invest in or be their next step? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the best investments on a proportional basis that you can make are in education. That obviously is something that gets tossed around a lot, but this podcast, the one that you're, you're producing, is, can be just a tremendous amount of resources, not only in terms of the education, but in terms of the networking component. So if you reach out to Lane, if you reach out to people that Lane is associated with, you will quickly see that the snowball effect can manifest in significant ways. Um, then the, the path will be very clear in terms of where that $200,000 will be allocated. Me, I'm extremely cautious about diversification, uh, probably to a fault, but my real goal is to be able to sleep at night. So when I'm talking about a building and portfolio of $200,000, I wouldn't want to be in at least five investments. And I think that's possible um, if you guys are associated with Lane and, and the opportunities that he has available, you can diversify. And I would feel comfortable with that. I think that's a great way to, you know, to start building that portfolio. And $200,000, that is nothing to scoff at, right? That's, you're well on your way to, to building that if you're able to execute and invest in properties that are going to deliver. Yeah. So you and I are both big proponents of self-storage and mobile home parks, maybe not multifamily on like a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, everybody talks about assisted living. Any other next frontier that you're, you're kind hmm. of looking at these days? Or Yeah, I mean, you mentioned assisted living, and I want to touch on that real quick because there is a tremendous opportunity there. The asset class is very unique. And this is something you may have talked about in the podcast before, but there is a lot of the focus in the asset classes on development, which is something that's slightly outside of my risk profile, especially when it comes to raising additional investor capital. But then the other companies, many of them are extremely well-funded. Some of them are publicly backed. So they don't need guys like you know, my firm investing three or five or $10 million. And even if they did, the terms wouldn't be good enough to, to allow it. So I'm constantly reviewing deals and constantly going through due diligence on those opportunities but it's challenging uh, because of those metrics. There's also this interesting dichotomy between the owner operators and the managers and the sponsors. There's like, it's a very different space. I do think it's possible that we're going to have something in 2018 or beginning in 2019, but that is something that I'm very interested in. And in terms of the future, there's a lot of different ways to make money in real estate, but I like the stuff that has been proven over and over again. So there's a tremendous opportunity in Airbnb. There's just a lot of regulatory hurdles that you may have to overcome. 
maybe if it was 10 years ago, I'd be really interested in that. But I think from an investment standpoint, I want to be diversified. As an entrepreneur, I want to be hyper-focused. So balancing those two is important. Mobile home parks, self-storage, and then when the timing is right, multifamily as well. I think those will be a really solid basis for your portfolio. Yeah. Something I've been looking at recently, I know people will think is kind of crazy, is retail shopping, like the strip malls. Um, Obviously, because Amazon is coming to kill every retailer out there. The thesis is that, well, people need to go to get their hair done, go to the dentist, and they're going to need stuff to buy. What's your thoughts on on that? I mean, I think stores like Macy's and are going away eventually, and like the Toys R Us, they get so much press. But maybe because it gets so much press, is there opportunity for guys like us to kind of find one-off deals here and there? What's your thoughts on that yeah. sector? I think that's a great question. And it's actually the first time someone's asked me that on a podcast, which is really good sign. Usually when people bring up retail, they're horrified, right? So what does that mean? It's probably an opportunity there. Um, I just recently interviewed someone named Michael Flight. I don't remember the episode number, okay, but yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, I've been oh, there. okay, cool. So, I mean, they're very active right now. You know, they're focusing on, re- it's all about the tenant base. It's all about the rent roll. Can the rent roll substantiate and can they sustain through a internet change in the internet, right? And can they, are they, subject to the Amazon threat. So Dollar General, for example, those make great tenants. Um, I think the, you mentioned the nail salon, for example. Restaurants, very hard to outsource that. The real key though, the thesis is that people need to go and get those things, but I'm much more compelled by the fact that everyone's horrified by it. And so because of that, I anticipate seeing a significant cap rate expansion when things do start to turn around. Right, right. You uh, zig when everybody's zagging is the takeaway. Yeah. So the the last question here we have is the Tony Robbins question. And he talks about two things, art of fulfillment and the science of achievement. So first, what's your secret or hack to the science of achievement? Any habits other than meditation to share? Maybe kind of go into your morning or nighttime rituals. Yeah, I mean, we, could, we talked briefly about the morning routines, but something that I'm an investor in a startup called Thrive Market. Um, I'm friends with the CEO whose name is Nick Green. He had a really interesting experience. Uh, he and his partner, um, his partner is Gennar. They had this idea. It's basically Whole Foods online, right? If you guys are members, it's thrivemarket.com. You get a reduced price for a lot of the things you may buy at Whole Foods, non-perishable goods. They came up with this idea. Both of them has tremendous track records as entrepreneurs prior to starting this company went out to VCs and I think they interviewed more than a hundred VCs and pitched more than a hundred VCs and got no's across the board. Not like we'll call you back. Not like let's get your information. Just like, no, we don't want to compete with Amazon. This is not a good idea. Goodbye. After doing this, they ended up raising money from private investors. And this is why I got the opportunity to invest in a company like this. When they were going through that process, Gnar basically realized what had happened. His background is not the typical VC background. He got a GD out of high school and went to community college, then started a really awesome company and sold that company. But he was trying to not let the VCs know that that was his background. You know, going in and interviewing with these guys that are Wharton grads, it's hard to not feel like intimidated by this, despite your background. Him shielding that from them, when you shield something from someone, especially if you're trying to get their money, they know that you're shielding something from them, but they don't know what it is. So they assume the worst. His story made it so that he could not raise money from any of these companies 
but it wasn't the story. The story is compelling. This guy went to a community college and started an education company and sold it for millions of dollars. And then it's on to his second venture. So as soon as he started being authentic about who he was and being upfront about that, the story changed completely. They actually ended up their series B was one of the largest series B's in the history of the United States up there with Airbnb because of that change in mindset. So that's my one takeaway is if you feel like you're hiding something from yourself, everyone has something like that. Just be honest about it. And people will find that interesting and compelling. Your secret hack to the art of fulfillment. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that I'm still in the process of figuring out, right? A lot of people talk about giving to charity and I've got my interesting views on, on charitable contributions and how it tampers with market forces, particularly things like, you know, foreign aid. I'm a big believer in disaster relief. You know, when, when something goes wrong, that's where the, the, the charitable contributions come in for me because I think that those, those quick, explicitly focused charitable things are the ones that actually give you the results that you're anticipating seeing. I hate seeing this fraud that takes place in the charitable industry as well. It just drives me insane. I'm still in the stage of, of learning more about that. You know, hopefully I'll, you know, I'll have come on your show in a year or two and have a better answer, but that's where my focus is, um, is disaster relief. There's plenty of companies that specialize in that. Yeah, yeah, and no, a great, great way to think about it, you know, for sure. Because I, I know a lot of people, you're on two sides of the coin. You either you give away a certain amount every year religiously, or you're like, well, I'm going to hold on to this because nobody else can grow this money like how I can and then give it all back at the end or when, once you reach over that crest and that whole idea of putting your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. Right, so I totally, yeah. I totally see that. Exactly. And I think that, you know, especially as investors, it's one thing if you're, you're, if you don't have the outlet for to grow capital, to make capital turn around. Um, I don't invest because of moral situations. That's, that's not, I don't want to invest in anything that I think is immoral. And I have passed on many investments because of that. But I have also seen the way that capitalism and the free market can turn neighborhoods around. One of the podcasts, you know, we did together, you mentioned Memphis. I'm from there. I have seen what investor activity has done to that city. It's incredible. There, there are neighborhoods where every single property has been completely rehabbed and completely safe. Mobile home park business is another example of that. You take a property that's completely mismanaged, turn it around. People that have lived there for 10 years come back and thank you. I mean, there's all those things are great ways to make money, but there are also ways to make people have a safe place to live. So, you know, still balancing that is, uh, you know, a challenge some of us struggle with and some people don't have any moral compass whatsoever, but uh, that's, that's not the way that I like to invest. <laughs> right. On the last time we were chatting about the crowdfunding sites, I mean, overall, I mean, that's a great thing. I mean, I would not invest in a crowdfunding site because I just go direct and I'm sure you're the same way. But mm -hmm. I mean, just think of this movement of like people getting out of Wall Street where everybody's taking all the profits and putting it in more direct projects that are kind of more B, C class level instead of just goes right to the A class and gets funneled down. These are kind of like, you know, using the terms from Trump, the, the helicopter projects where projects money gets infused right into like regular people's hands. Totally. hundred percent. But, um, but yeah, what's your, um, get your contact information and people get a hold of you and then, you know, we'll have you on in the next year or two and you can kind of tell us where you're at again. Yeah, sure. So, Again, thanks again for, for taking the time to check out the episode. Uh, the contact information is Hunter Thompson at cashflowconnections.com. You can go to my website, cashflowconnections.com, 
And if you like podcasts, you know, happy to have you as a listener on the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. We just had Lane on recently, and I'm sure that episode will be available soon. So thanks again. All right, Hunter. Well, uh, appreciate it, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.